0: We are beginning this morning a, a series of messages in Leviticus now that um, kind of turn from the notion and ideas of, uh, related to the sacrifices to the feast days, still uh, a means of access to God, but uh, in, in a different way. Um, I'm uh, somewhat fearful this morning because the first feast day that we will consider in Leviticus 23 is the feast of the Sabbath rest. I'm fearful because uh, in combination with the early hour of the service and uh, the desire that some of you may have to immediately apply the truths of Sabbath rest, that some of you may be nodding off actually uh, before the service is over. So fight that temptation if you would. Uh, we are going to look at uh, just three verses this morning, and I know we've covered larger uh, portions at a time, but uh, uh, this morning we're just going to introduce the, the subject of uh, the feasts and then touch on the, the first feast of Sabbath rest. So I'm going to read from chapter 23, just the first three verses. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Now, feasts were remembrances. Uh, memorials, if you will. Something like the uh, idea of communion that we just celebrated. There was that uh, one perspective of looking back in terms of God's provision for the people of Israel and an event that God had done in their behalf. So there was that idea of, uh, and, of uh, reflection and commemoration and contemplation. But there was also that future element in these feasts, as all of the feasts, as we will see over the coming weeks, anticipate the coming of Messiah and some dimension of the Messiah's life, his death, or his resurrection. And so the feasts were memorials so the people could remember. And at on the one hand, they were to be reflecting, and on the other hand, they were to be anticipating. So it was a multi-directional reminder, and that was the, the nature of the feasts that the Lord appointed to the people of Israel. And then we come to, chap- or to uh, verse 3, where we see the first of these fe- feasts listed, And in verse 3, we read six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So we see the the first feast is the, the Feast of Sabbath rest. Now, if you were listening to that uh, verse, uh, no doubt you heard the word seven. Now, seven was a critically important number in your study of the uh, Bible. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word seven is listed over 700 times in the Bible. Now, the number seven was central to the idea of the feasts. And in biblical Hebrew, the uh, notion of uh, fullness and completeness was identified with the number seven. Uh, We've already noted that there were a series of feasts in verse two that were appointed. Well, there happened to be seven of them. The first of which was the remembrance of the seventh day, which was a reflection of God's rest in his creation. But there's more. Every seven years, there is a special Sabbath where the slaves are released, where debts are forgiven, and the entire landscape also enjoys Sabbath rest. That is to say, there is no farming to be done. The land has a year of rest. But there's even more again. Every seventh cycle of seven years, that is to say, every seven times seven, every 49 years, there is a special year, another special Sabbath called the year of Jubilee. We'll see more about this in Leviticus chapter 25, but the word in Hebrew, jubilee, means ram's horn. The ram's horn, or the the trumpet sound, actually commences the year of jubilee, which happens to take place on the seventh month of the Hebrew calendar. So, the question is, where did the uniqueness of the number seven begin? Well, the answer is that it begins back at the beginning, the very beginning. And uh, I'm not going to uh, turn for the sake of time and and, uh, read all of these verses, but many of you are familiar with it. Uh, In the beginning, in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis, it begins with darkness and disorder. But then God speaks to bring light and life and order so that life can flourish. And this happens over a period of six days. And each day, the conclusion of each day is marked with the phrase, And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day, etc. And then we come into the second chapter of Genesis, and we read these verses from uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all of the host of them... And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So on the seventh day, something special happens. God finished his work. God stops and rests on the seventh day. And then God blessed the seventh day, making it holy. Now, I don't want to discourage the notion of the Sunday afternoon nap. Um, I'm a proponent of of the Sunday afternoon nap. In fact, I'm a proponent of any nap on any day. Uh, But um, let's not misunderstand and think that the basis of our Sunday afternoon nap is found here in Genesis chapter 2. Because when it speaks of God resting, it doesn't uh, indicate that God was tired and in need of some sleep. To the contrary, the Isaiah reminds us in his 40th uh, chapter of his prophecy that God neither sleeps nor slumbers. But the idea of rest in Hebrew is the idea of completeness or fullness. That is uh, an activity that is finished. God ceased from his work after six days. And what is really interesting as we go back and reread the account of creation is that when God finished his creation, there was not the phrase, there was evening and morning the seventh day. That was omitted. It was as if the seventh day was to be a day without end. Man and woman were appointed to rule in that paradise with God eternally. There was no work. There was no labor. There was no sweat. And God ordained the seventh day as to be an ongoing memorial of his original perfect creation. Sounds pretty good, right? Unfortunately, Genesis 2 ends and Genesis 3 begins, and humankind, uh, the first man and woman, uh, fell to the temptation, uh, and as a result, they shook their fist in the face of God, and they were exiled from the garden and from that uh, wonderful, creative seventh-day rest. Suddenly, real rest was needed— Because one of the consequences of the fall was that the the land would no longer give up produce except by the sweat of your brow. As time unfolded, the nation Israel even ended up in another kind of wilderness, literally in slavery in the land of Egypt. But God, the best two words found in Scripture, but God... Desired to restore that idea, that notion of rest through Moses to the nation of Israel so that they then in turn could share that good news with others. And so on their way to the promised land, while still in the wilderness, God invites them to live as if they are already there, through these appointed feasts. How were they going to do that? By every seventh day stopping their work or in Hebrew, Shabbat, and to reflect on God's perfect, wonderful paradise, his original creation. And at the same time, they were to reflect on the fact that this Beautiful seventh-day rest was forfeited by their sin. That's the notion of looking back. But then the idea of looking forward was also included in hope-filled anticipation that one day Messiah will come and that he will introduce again that Sabbath rest. But once Israel got into the promised land, They forgot their God and eventually were exiled for a period of 70 years. And that 70-year period was very significant because each year, the Bible tells us, that Israel neglected that seventh-year Sabbath, the one where the land rested. God kept them in exile for one year so the 70 years was a reflection of their obedient or their disobedience to sabbath rest but even then while in exile the prophets provided hope one day their exile will end and the ultimate jubilee of freedom and rest will come but generations came and went without uh, any indication, apparently, of that future hope. But then, as Galatians 4.4 reminds us, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, and Jesus appeared on the scene, and he launches his ministry in Nazareth, interestingly enough, on the Sabbath, as was his habit, Jesus entered into the synagogue where he was given the scroll from Isaiah to read. You may be familiar with the portion. Let me remind you. And Jesus stood in the synagogue, and this is what he chose to read from the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are opposed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor? Yes. Jesus audaciously, as he turned and said to that congregation, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Was indicating that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be the ultimate Sabbath rest. Jesus was the ultimate Jubilee. And how did that go? The first sermon that Jesus preached. Well, I think back to my first sermon that I've ever preached. And I have to tell you, to be honest with you, I fumbled and bumbled my way through it. But uh, the people were very gracious. Uh, They did not uh, grab me by the arm and and take me to a high place in order to throw me off a cliff. Although, in retrospect, there there could have been a few that actually, uh, truth be told, that's what they would have liked to have done. But they didn't. They warmly uh, received me. Well, Jesus didn't have that uh, warm reception. In fact, after a few more statements, that's exactly what they did. They brought him out to a cliff to throw him off. Uh, But the scripture says that he uh, disappeared uh, from uh, from the crowd. But Jesus was the ultimate jubilee, and it didn't go very well. And the writer of the Hebrews later expressed the fact that it wouldn't go very well because he said, you are just like your fathers who did not enter into that rest because of your disbelief. And if you think about it, much of the confrontation and the sense of provoking that we see in the life and ministry of Jesus took place Uh, with regard to the sabbath and specifically the misunderstanding of the sabbath Uh, let me give you uh, just uh, a couple examples Uh, when the disciples were walking through the grain field and snatching off uh, the tops of the grain in order to eat uh, the pharisees were critical of that they beheld Jesus and his disciples doing this, and they said, why are your disciples doing this? Uh, The uh, Pharisees and the rabbis had all kinds of additional rules and regulations, and uh, basically they accused Jesus and his disciples of harvesting on the Sabbath by doing this. The response that Jesus gave was rather stark. He said to them that the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was not created to be a burden, but to relieve burdens as people reflected on that perfect seventh-day rest of God's original creation. And as God rested, that is, in, in the completeness and the perfection and the of his creative touch, God indicating himself by saying it was good after each day, Uh, so too was the the sense of that relief, of that burden, and the sense of anticipation of that future rest, but instead the religious leaders made it a great uh, sense of burden and, and obligation and do's and don'ts and took the word of God and added to it by listing so many things that uh, were not actually intended. And much of the agitation uh, that Jesus gave to the religious leaders and the overthrowing of their misinterpretation of um, what the Sabbath was to be about focused on the Sabbath feast. But Jesus wasn't finished yet. After he said that the Sabbath was not made for man, but man for the Sabbath, Jesus then said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, my teaching is what was the original, uh, the original intent. Jesus declared himself to be sovereign over the Sabbath. That is to say, anything that Jesus did on the Sabbath was acceptable in the sight of God. Jesus went on to say, which of you would not rescue a sheep who has fallen into a pit on the Sabbath? In essence, wasn't that the ministry of Jesus rescuing sheep who have uh, fallen into the pit of sin and despair and degradation and lifting us out to newness of life? That's the way Jesus described his ministry in a sentence as contained in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. The son of man came, Jesus said, to seek and to save that which was lost. Unfortunately, the rabbis and the religious leaders, as I indicated, made it a series of burdensome rules and missed the whole point. For the rabbis, there was no rest any longer. But rather, there was that constant doing, that constant observing, that constant practicing, that constant performing, that constant working, that constant sacrificing, as we've been reading and studying in Leviticus. And ultimately, it all led to a dead end anyway. The writer to the Hebrews said that none of these things in chapter 10 and verse 1 could make those Perfect or complete or fulfilled. Again, the notion of seven, uh, those who draw near. You see, when Jesus addressed the multitude and said, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I used to read this and think that Jesus was addressing the multitude under the burdens and the severity of life and saying, come to me, I will give you rest. But I think specifically, the question is, how were they heavy laden? From what was Jesus rescuing them? And the answer is these series of burdens and laws and do's and don'ts that were cast upon them by their religious leaders. In fact, Jesus gives us that interpretation a few chapters later in Matthew, When he says, describing the religious leaders, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. Listen, my friends, if you get a little else out of the message this morning, I want you to understand this. This is the difference between religion and Christianity. Okay? Religion demands do. Christianity proclaims done. Okay? Religion says do. Work, labor, sacrifice, rules. And we still do that today, don't we? There's so many people that we talk to and they think acceptance has to do with being the right way and doing the right thing and 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 a series of this and that, and I don't smoke, drink, chew, or go with the girls that do, and therefore God has to be happy with me. But Jesus said, that's doing. But Jesus said what he did was a completion. It was final. It was full. All the sacrifices of Leviticus the writer to the Hebrews says, could never make perfect, make complete those who draw near. Even the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, we're told later by the writer of the book of Hebrews that those sacrifice, that sacrifice could never result in the forgiveness of sin. Rather, God was merely appeased, For another year, and judgment was postponed. But then the writer to the Hebrews says this in chapter 10 and verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, he rested at the right hand of God. His sacrifice was final, it was full, it was complete and it was forever. But wait, Jesus was executed. Did that in some way thwart God's plan to establish a new Sabbath rest? Well, it may appear that way, but think about it. In the providence of God and in the plan of Almighty God, the death of Jesus was timed toward the end of the week. On the Sabbath... The body of Jesus rested in the tomb. But on the eighth day, he arose again. Wait a minute. The eighth day? You mean the first day. Exactly. On the first day, the beginning of a new week, the first day of a new creation, once again, God's light broke through the darkness and the ultimate jubilee was established for his people. The songwriter singer Michael Card expressed it this way in one of his songs. At the Lord's appointed time, his deep desire became a man, the heart of all true jubilation, and with joy we understand. In his voice we hear a trumpet sound that tells us we are free, he is the incarnation of the year of Jubilee. Now, we're not at that complete seventh day rest yet. That's uh, upon a future day. But in our relationship with Jesus, as Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As we walk with him, we can have a taste of that seventh day Restoration of rest, even as we walk toward that uh, final day that is yet future. Think about it. Jesus, our Jubilee, sins forgiven, debts released, slaves sent on their way with liberty and freedom. That's a beautiful picture of the fact that sin no longer has its grip on us, that we could be released, that we could be born again, or as Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, we can be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light through Jesus Christ our Savior, and by him we can become a new creation. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our past state where we willfully rejected your way and your will to go our own way, questioning, Lord, your goodness and your truthfulness. We're thankful for those two words, but God. We're thankful that you restored the path of access to you, no longer through sacrifices that we continue to make on a daily basis and the annual Day of Atonement, but our Father through the superior priesthood of Jesus who finished his sacrifice finally, fully, and forever and now is sitting down at the right hand of God and is promising for those who follow him that uh, future rest, and yet enables us to enjoy a taste of that rest here and now. What a privilege is ours. And as we think about uh, and reflect on the events that took place that we celebrate and memorialize this week, we realize what it cost to bring us into this new position. Thank, <clears throat> thank you for the death that Jesus was willing to die So that we might be brought into that new life, that we might be made fulfilled in him, complete in him, and enjoying the taste of that seventh day rest. For we ask all this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.